You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Oh God, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit now as we prayed for you to speak to us and fill the earth with your glory. Uh, we ask that your Spirit would come and do just two things. Show us our need for Jesus and give him to us. We need you, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to begin my sermon today by lodging a complaint against the world of 1 Corinthians 13 preaching. I know you've been waiting for this moment of justice. I've seen the viral hashtags on social media, hashtag 1 Corinthians 13 justice now, right, with an exclamation point. The injustice here is the romanticization and the hallmarkization of this passage. The great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, as it's called. When do we hear this passage often? At weddings, right? At weddings. It's in our prayer book as an option for weddings. But honestly, I'm pretty tired of hearing this passage read at weddings. And I mean, no offense if you've had it read at your wedding. I probably have at mine. I'm sure it was cross-stitched and probably hanging up in my powder room right now, or on my wall via transfer sticker that I put up back in the mid-2000s. Heck, Abby and I actually have the first and second half of this passage tattooed in matching form on our left and right calf, right? Advent, if you just let us dress a little bit more casually, I'd be wearing shorts on Sunday, and you'd see this, but you don't know this about me. But anyway, the point here is that we've shoved uh, 1 Corinthians 13 so often into the context of marriage and romantic relationships, that we as the church have totally lost sight of the fact that this has far less to do with the relationship between uh, a husband and a wife or a man and a woman and far more to do with our relationship between our brothers and sisters who, who gather together. In other words, this is a passage about you and your relationship with other people in this room. And here's the second problem. Taken out of context, this passage has been used far more often for preachers to give little pep talks to their congregations that go something like this. This is what love looks like, so you should love other people like this. And ultimately, if that's all it is, preaching and teaching like this ends up being something like a congregational life coaching session, right? And the scriptures aren't ultimately a manual for self-improvement. Contrary to a lot of preaching and teaching these days, especially on passages like this, because the living and active word of God exists to draw you and me into repentance or to use Paul's scarier language in his next book over second Corinthians three, the word of God exists to kill you and to give you life. So Paul's agenda here isn't to establish a Corinthian life coaching session. Paul's not intending to be a love doctor, okay? Think about it for a second. What was he addressing in the chapters previous as we've been working our way through Corinthians? Chapter 10, he's addressing division and idolatry. Chapter 11, he's addressing women overreaching their freedom in Christ and sabotaging their relationships and rich people trampling the poor at the table of God. Chapter 12, People using their spiritual gifts as a means of one-upsmanship in the body of Christ. And so we hit chapter 13, and when we do, Paul describes what love looks like. And there's an obvious angle and edge 
to what he's saying. He's basically saying, you know what the root of these problems are, ultimately? You don't really love each other. Well, prove it, Paul. And Paul says, sure thing, Corinth. Let me show you what love actually looks like. You see, Paul's not so much using this love chapter to build up and to affirm and coach the Corinthian church. He's talking about love to cut them down to size, to deflate their ballooned egos, to expose their hidden motivations and their faulty justifications for their ungodly behavior. And so as painful as it is, I want to be loyal to Scripture's agenda and tone and tenor here, and we'll crack open the big points and then maybe pick out a few of the smaller points to examine. So first, the big point. Listen to this. In the recipe book of God, love is the fundamental ingredient of a truly good work. I'm going to say it again. In the recipe book of God, love is the fundamental ingredient of a truly good work. In other words, if you see someone doing something good out there, if love isn't at the root of it, it's not a truly good work. And you have to think about it a bit before you realize just how shattering a statement this is. Because we see a lot of good works out there in the world. And they might be beneficial for humanity and for our neighbors. But in my economy, God says, they don't impress me one bit. God's singular criterion for a good work is love. Which is why it's a false and dangerous Idea, even though it's a common religious trope, that if I'm just a decent person, and if I generally keep my nose clean, generally do the right thing, that God will accept me, and I'll go to heaven, and all will be well. You know, it's not only Christians who believe that, it's other religions that kind of buy into that idea. And this passage says that's totally false. God's response to you is, I delight in the fact that you aren't as bad as you could possibly be. That's a good thing. You didn't murder anyone. You kept my big laws, maybe, and even some of my small ones. But throughout your life, you failed to realize, my precious child, that when I was calling you to repentance time and again, I was actually wanting you more often to repent of your righteousness and not your unrighteousness. I wanted you to come clean about the fact That your good works weren't good like you thought they were. This whole idea is what I find compelling. And I know it's trendy about the Enneagram personality assessment. Yes, it's imprecise. Yes, it can have a tendency to gloss over the complexities of who human human beings are. And no, it can't solve all our problems. Because I don't think it actually gives us any good solutions to the issues. And no, it's not the word of God, right? Right? But what I find the Enneagram doing better than many other assessments out there is the uncomfortable work of exposing our hidden motivations behind our actions. I'm an Enneagram 3, okay? I'm what's called the performer and achiever. And Enneagram 3s tend to be motivated by success and reputation and the perception of others. And so, confession as your pastor. As I preach this sermon... Deep down in my flesh, I become more aware that I'm not ultimately doing it because I love you. I'm doing it because I want you to be impressed with me. I want you to tell me that I'm a successful pastor. 
Yes, I want your hearts to be changed by the word of God. But even then, I kind of want your hearts to be changed because deep down, it revs the engine of my own performance and achievement. Paul says here, therefore, Zach, that sermon is not a good work. It doesn't get you one inch closer to earning the love of God and currying his favor because he sees right through to your selfish motivation, which is sin. And it blows up the whole project. Zach, it's your righteous deeds, your preaching, your pastoral counseling. You're helping out the least of these that you need to repent of. Those deeds don't sound like love to me, God says. They sound like a clanging cymbal. They sound like a resounding gong. You all know what a gong is, right? Yes, that's right. It's the worst instrument on the planet. Anyone who spends time in middle school bands knows this. The only person that likes a sound of a gong is who? The person hitting it, right? And the first time you hear it, it's shocking and mildly tolerable. But the second time you hear it, you want to murder the person who's hitting it, right? You move immediately from a fraction of tolerance straight into beast mode. I must kill the person playing this, right? And God says that horrible sound is what your loveless good works sound like to me. And this is what's so painful about Paul's list here, love is patient, love is kind, that we all have cross-stitched in our powder rooms, right? Let's now peer into some of Paul's specific points. Love is patient, or in the older English, love suffereth long. Love will stick in a relationship even when it hurts, even through the discomfort. Love will remain in a relationship. Love will remain in a church even when it hurts. I hear Paul saying love doesn't church hop. Have you ever thought about the fact that part of the call of patience in a local church, part of the call to be patient, isn't so much, I don't know, about being okay with being further back in the communion line or something like that. No, the call of patience, get this, is to endure the sin of others. And maybe the call of patience is also to endure the pain of sinning against others and not running from the process of reconciliation about that, right? Oh, I don't know if I want to sign up for that, Lord, right? Some of us here are real prophetic types. You see things as black and white. You're an Enneagram one. You see injustice everywhere. You see things at the advent that need to change. You know what patience looks like? It looks like enduring the slow pace of change, faithfully and humbly, neither giving up nor lashing out. Maybe there's a difference that you don't want to recognize between unhealthy toleration of sin and injustice and patiently allowing God's timing in the process of repentance and trusting in the work of the word of the Lord. Hard pill to swallow. But that's what love is. Love is not irritable. I really don't like that translation because I'm an irritable person by nature. Other translations say love is not easily provoked. Well, I don't like that either because I tend to be provoked that way. Or to use a buzzword, love is not easily triggered. Love in the Christian community doesn't fish for ways to be offended. Love doesn't look for reasons to be upset about things. 
I remember in my younger years in church encountering folks who never got offended about anything. They always thought the best of people. They never had a mean word to say about others. I, I really don't like those people. I used to think that those people were just immature and naive. They had their heads in the sand and needed more realism like me. Now I'm starting to believe more wholeheartedly what a now deceased seminary professor once said when he said that the mature Christian is one who is not easily offended. Whew, that's heavy. Love is not resentful. Or as other translations read, love keeps no record of wrongs. Notice what the text doesn't say. Love keeps no record of apologized for wrongs. Because love short circuits the process. It goes ahead of any apology. Love for our brothers and sisters like God's love doesn't wait for the contrition and confession of the offending party. And you know what? Honestly, that doesn't mean reconciliation in all instances when it comes to human relationships. In my life right now, there's a relationship that remains unreconciled. And the attempts at reconciliation have gotten to the point where I really feel like I have no more moves to make. I feel like I've tried everything. I've worked with the Lord and with others on this one. I've literally done everything I could. And it's an open wound for me. And it's an open wound for this person. In this instance, I really do have to submit to the word of God when it tells me that love doesn't build up resentment. It fights resentment and bitterness like an arch enemy. It chooses daily and hourly to say, I will lay down my sword again on this one. And then finally, look at this pairing in verse 7. Love bears all things and hopes all things. Did you catch the juxtaposition of the nearness of these two phrases here? On the one hand, love bears all things. You know, love holds what we call here at the Advent a low anthropology, a realistic view that Christians and church people are still sinners. Or as one pastor once told me, Wherever there's sheep, there's going to be sheep poop, okay? Love learns not to expect from her brothers and sisters perfection. In fact, love humbly expects and anticipates the opposite, that the church is going to be a wounded and wounding place. Love bears all things. But that stands in tension with this. That love hopes all things. Love might have a low anthropology, an unrealis- a realistic understanding of our brothers and sisters, but it also has an incredible optimism, a shockingly high hope in the transforming work of God in the life of another individual. Love says, against my flesh's inclinations, I'm going to choose to think the best of this person because I believe not really necessarily in them, but in the power of Christ that is in them. And I trust in the Spirit who will produce fruit because He promised that in His Word. And so in a way, when we don't hope all things for that person, we're doubting the promises of God. So in this pairing of love, bearing all things, and hoping all things, we have God saying that love takes Debbie Downer and Pollyanna and mashes them together. And that's what love looks like. So, okay. 
After that, how are you feeling? Are you feeling as cut down to size as I am? Paul would say, good. That was my objective. But honestly, this moment right now exposes the fact that I think it's a little unhelpful sometimes when we break down and preach discrete passages like this. You know, divorced from the larger context of 1 Corinthians. Because Paul's letters a whole. You know, Paul will go on in chapter 14 to continue chopping the Corinthians down to size. But then he does something that you always see him doing in his letters. You turn to chapter 15 and it begins in this way. Now I would remind you, now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. Christ died for our sins, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. In other words, right now, having been cut down to size, God desires to give you the gospel of Jesus. You see, part of the reason that Paul cuts us down to size with that impossible picture of love in the local church is that when the church actually starts to exhibit this kind of love, it's obviously not something that the church produced on its own. It's a love that the world can't know. And it's a love that the church, apart from Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, can't know as well. But when that love is seen in little glimmers, it's obviously otherworldly. It's obviously heaven breaking into earth. It's obviously the future breaking into the present. And it's obviously the work of God, not the work of the people. So the question before us is, how does that love get kindled in us? How do we stoke these flames? We do this ultimately by hearing 1 Corinthians 13, not as a call to action for the church, but as a call to repentance. And in the midst of that call to repentance, God comes and takes what he demanded from you and turns it around, handing it back to you, not as a demand, but as a gift. And here's God's gift to you today. Jesus is patient. He's never in a hurry for you to clean up yourself and be the perfect person. He's willing to love you the way a gardener tends plants, with tender hands and a steadfast spirit. Jesus is kind. He's always running after sinners. He's always pursuing bad people. And he's always pursuing good people who don't recognize that they're bad. Jesus does not boast and is not proud. Philippians 2 tells us, actually, that he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He wrapped himself in flesh to come to your level, to save you, to die and to rise for you and to forgive you and to usher you into everlasting life. And Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. I've said this before and I'll say it again. The sins you can't forget, God can't remember in Christ. This is exactly what Jesus meant when he said from the cross, it is finished. Jesus hopes all things. 
And Jesus hopes all things because he is the hope of all things. He knows what his capabilities are. And he's all powerful. And he will save you. He will not let you go. His love is stronger than your hate. His life is stronger than death. His glory is brighter than the darkness of your depression. And his intimacy is the balm of your loneliness. His healing is the salve for your wounds. And his wholeness is the eventual end promised for your brokenness. So be filled again today with the hope of God found in the love of Jesus Christ for you. Amen and amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.